Hi, Supervisor Mandelman. Morning. Yeah, so is your first time in Twitter Spaces? This is my first time in Twitter Spaces. <laughs> welcome, I made welcome it. To the, <laughs> welcome to the space. So yeah, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, for those joining for the first time, uh, this is a weekly show hosted by GrowSF. GrowSF itself is a community of citizens and residents in San Francisco promoting and building a more inclusive and livable city. We focus on educating people on local issues, increasing civic engagement, and publishing election voter guides. Every week we host elected officials, civil servants, and community members from different perspectives to discuss the problems facing our city. Today, we'll be interviewing Supervisor Raphael Mandelman. Supervisor Mandelman is the Supervisor of San Francisco District 8. Supervisor Mandelman's the district covers uh, the areas from the Castro to the Mission. He actually grew up in San Francisco as well before going to Yale and Harvard Kennedy School and Berkeley Law School. Um, after that, he became the Deputy City Attorney of the City of Oakland. More recently, he was then elected to the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco in 2018, and he has led legislation on reforming cannabis, mental health, and housing reform. So thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, for joining. Glad to be here. I think today we're going to dive into just learning more about yourself and your perspectives on progressivism and its evolution in the city, having been here for multiple decades. Um, but starting off, you grew up in San Francisco, um, which is more than most can say who, who live here today. What were your fondest memories of San Francisco growing up? Um, and uh, maybe two formative experiences uh, in your adolescence that you feel maybe had a profound effect on informing your philosophy as a progressive today? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I, mo I moved to San Francisco when I was 11. Um, and I came under, came here under sort of odd circumstances. I'd been living with my mom in Southern California. Um, she was, uh, sort of going deeper and deeper into, um, mental illness. Um, and, um, by the, time, by the time, well, yeah, it happens. <laughs> but by the time I was 11, it was pretty I was actually diagnosed as a type one diabetic at around the same time she was spiraling further out of control. And, um, so I had a grandmother up here, um, and, uh, I flew up, didn't know if I was going back down to Southern California, and uh, I never did. Um, and, um, you know, some, and that was, uh, I was living on the western side of San Francisco in the fog belt. Uh, my grandmother lived at 20th and Noriega. Um, and uh, so, you know, one of, one of my realizations as a youth was that not everybody in San Francisco was living in fog all the time. Um, which was a real breakthrough moment when I was about 16. Um, uh, <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, for me, the, my, um, I don't know if it's fond recollections, but the, what was pretty important to me about that, um, seven year period in my life between, you know, coming here and going off to college was all the people who kind of in different ways stepped in to help me out. Um, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and had, you know, I think her own set of mental health issues. And ultimately, um, although she loved me a lot, you know, my living with her was not really going to work. Uh, and so although she remained involved in my life and continually supportive, I ended up living with other um, folks, friends, uh, families took me in. Um, the, you know, head of my middle school for uh, a few months, um, a teacher in high school and her husband took me in for three years. Um, and that's kind of how I got through. It was all, you know, none of it was formally through the foster care system or anything like that. 
Um, it was just these informal arrangements that um, managed to support me and give me tremendous opportunities um, beyond that. When I was a junior, my the teachers at my high school, you know, put some money together and sent me on an East Coast college tour. I'd never seen the East Coast. Um, and, you know, so I was, you know, some ways had a challenging adolescence, but in more ways, I think was just remarkably fortunate to, uh, to have all these people helping out. Who were some of the, it seems amazing. Like, um, I, I grew up in suburbs where I don't know if anyone would do that. Um, <laughs> uh, do you think it's the spirit of San Francisco that like this camaraderie for your neighbor, like, how did they, how did you meet these, these your middle school teacher? Like, was there something different about them or you feel it's part of San Franciscan culture? I mean, of course, I like to think it's part of San Francisco and people helping out. But I, I imagine, you know, people help, help each other out in lots of different parts of this country and the world. Um, I was, uh, you know, just and, and all, clearly it doesn't always happen. I was but I was um, I was very fortunate to get that. I think, you know, there are, you know, even today there's a, the uh, San Francisco LGBT Center has a host homes program. Um, where, you know, they match uh, uh, households with um, younger folks who are unhoused and need a place to be. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that seems a lot, you know, those folks um, in some ways are taking more of a, a leap of faith than, you know, these people who knew me, knew that I was, you know, not a perfect kid, but, you know, not, uh, not going to be, you know, a super challenge and, and just wanted to be helpful. And I think, you know, I think it's important to do that at a personal level with the people, you know, and then as a policy matter, I think it's, you know, I think that has informed my view about, you know, uh, not leaving people behind my views on kind of not leaving people behind, recognizing that there are people like my mom who are going to need to be um, taken care of in more, you know, aggressive and intensive ways, um, who may never actually uh, be able to stand on their own two feet. And then, you know, people like me, as a younger person who just needed a little help for a few years uh, before I could, you know, go off and do my own, my own thing. So I do think that that has, I've always been interested in politics. I was interested in politics as like a seven-year-old. So, you know, I'm not going to wow. say I'm, I'm into Paul. I, you know, I like, I had opinions about the 1980, um, you know, presidential race and I was in kindergarten or first grade, you know, <laughs> like I was, <laughs> I was a little weirdo. Um, uh, but I think that kind of my flavor of politics and my real belief in taking care of those who need to be taken care of has a lot to do with my own experience and, and, um, my mom's experience. Well, Supervisor so, Mandelman, hi, this is Joel and Guardio. Hey, Joel. You, hi, you, you know, you, uh, came to San Francisco at age 11, lived mm -hmm. on the, on the West side in the fog belt, uh, you know, yeah. 20th and Noriega in the, Took the 28 and the 29 and the 71. Those yeah, but that but that that part of San Francisco, especially in the 1980s, was a world apart from Castro. Absolutely. So I'm wondering, <laughs> can you tell me a bit about as an adolescent, like you're currently the only LGBTQ supervisor at City Hall. Yeah. Um, as an adolescent living on the, the historically conservative west side of worlds from Castro in the 1980s. Were you aware of the Castro? Were you aware of the, the, the full blown AIDS crisis going on? Like, how did that affect your coming to terms with being gay as an adolescent? I mean, I had to leave San Francisco to come out. So I had to go away. You know, I had to go to college, go to Yale. Um, Yale's a pretty comfortable place to be uh, queer and, you know, and probably more so today, but even in the 90s, uh, definitely. And um, so that, that was my coming out story. I was... Um, 
You know, I think like a lot of probably San Francisco kids, uh, you know, sort of existentially more liberal than not. But, um, but you know, back then, I think still a lot of San Francisco kids were pretty homophobic. And I think I was pretty homophobic. And um, I remember like, you know, boys in middle school were all telling each other homophobic jokes and thought it was really hilarious. And, um, and so for me, um, you know, even though I knew I was more liberal leaning and I, you know, I was a Democrat and I, um, you know, I, I, you know, I knew that AIDS was happening. I knew that, you know, I thought everybody should be treated equally, but I did have these sort of like, you know, embedded, uh, you know, biases and homophobia. I remember I, I interned for, um, uh, Doris Ward, uh, who was on the board of supervisors. She was the first, um, African-American woman board president, actually first African-American board president. Um, but I interned for her for a summer and I remember Harry Britt was the, uh, was the gay supervisor at that point. And I had this sort of trepidation whenever I would walk by his office that somehow I was going to get kidnapped or hijacked or something terrible was going to happen to me, which is like definitely the homophobia of a young queer kid who has not like addressed his issues. Um, I was aware, you know, I was aware that the Castro existed. I remember like, you know, uh, being in the back seat, you know, when you're a kid, you're being driven around being in the back seat and sort of being aware that we're going through the Castro and definitely is a different place from the sunset or the Richmond. Um, but it was definitely a foreign place. I didn't really start exploring the Castro until I was in, in, in college. Um, coming back for for summer breaks. What, what um, was I the had, first Castro bar that you went to? Do you oh remember? gosh, um, I don't remember the first bar. I remember going to Cafe Floor though. Actually, as I think as a senior in high school, because it was just a, a cool place for kids. You know, kids like to go there, and so I was sort of becoming increasingly aware of this other part of San Francisco. Again, not really comfortable saying that I you know was part of this community, but you know, my, if my friends were going there, I'd go with them. Um, and so I think I was, I do remember cafe floor as like a high school senior. Um, and, uh, yeah, I can't really remember what the first bar I went to was. I remember, you know, there were public access TV. This is pre-internet. And, um, you know, I remember public access TV being like a big thing. And I remember discovering these, you know, uh, shows that were being produced by, I'm sure they were like, you know, 20 something young queer people, but they were strangely exciting to me and interesting. And they were talk shows or art shows or whatever, but you know, many produced by queer folks. And I was like, definitely drawn to it, but also not comfortable with it. I'm curious, taking a step back, um, just two things that you mentioned before, um, which was, I, that was fascinating because would you consider yourself to have been part of like the unhoused community growing up um, in that sense? I don't think so. You know, I, my mother was, um, mm. my mother had a period where, uh, while I was in college, um, she lost her house. She, she had been supported some by her mother, her mom stopped, you know, sort of cut her off and she had no resources and, um, ended up in a, in a shelter in Orange County. And I had this sort of bizarre experience as a freshman at Yale in Sterling Memorial Library in a payphone, you know, I'm getting this world-class education um, and uh, having this, in, in some, you know, in many ways, amazing time and talking to my mother who's, you know, spending the night in a homeless shelter. And she was there, I think, for a few months and ultimately, you know, ended up in, 
sort of various different board and care facilities and um you know some were good some were not so good uh she she her experience you know she was unhoused not unhoused ever on the street um but she was unhoused i i can't say that i think of myself as having been been homeless no worries yeah it's it's, because it's interesting that uh a a comment and a, a question um Sometimes people, I feel, um, say that San, San Francisco is like a sanctuary city, but I think that's a misnomer in that I think a lot of, uh, from what I've read, a lot of um, people who come to San Francisco are are LGBTQ, um, mm-hmm. trying to escape family conflict, mm-hmm. and they come here and don't often have housing to start. Um, yeah. And so it's it's actually like something that draws, it's, it's a really nice thing people come here for that, but they often don't have a place to stay. Um, the, I'm curious, you, uh, given your experience with your mother, I'm sure you have like very like hand, you have direct experience with and probably perspectives on homelessness and mental illness. How do you feel those experiences informed maybe the, the policy perspectives um, and how do they differ from colleagues or other people who haven't necessarily experienced the life they had growing up? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of a couple uh good um, thoughts or points in there. One is, I, I, Bilal, I think you're, you are identifying one of the great tragedies of, you know, 2021 San Francisco, 2020 San Francisco, 2015 San Francisco, which is that um, this is, you know, a beacon, San Francisco, this city is a beacon of hope for queer people and especially queer kids around the world. Um you know, uh, Harvey Milk said, you know, some kid in some small town in America hears that a gay man has gotten elected in San Francisco um, and, you know, now has two options. One is to uh, move to San Francisco and the other is to stay and fight. And um, increasingly, you know, to the good, uh, people are staying and fighting in, you know, communities and countries around the world. But it's still such a draw. And, you know, for a trans person who who is not feeling um, like they can be their true authentic self uh, and who's been bullied and harassed in some, you know, part of the country where um, where that is ha- happens. Um, and of course, it still happens here, too. But, you know, in some places it happens more and worse. Um, you know, the draw of being able to come to San Francisco and find sanctuary here is true and real, except that you do get here. And if you don't have resources and a way to make a living, um, the housing becomes a huge, huge problem. And, you know, there are disproportionately uh, queer people rep- rep- uh, represented among the unhoused um, and queer kids. Um, I think something like a third, between a third and a half of um, the kids on, on the street are um, identify as LGBTQ. So, um, so that is uh, a real problem um, and one that I think the city needs to try to do more to address. Um, I think for, uh, you know, how my own experience with my mother um, influences me and my policymaking, um, in one sense, it just, you know, makes me aware that there are people who, you know, my own experience, her experience in a visceral immediate way makes me recognize that there are people who need help and are not going to get through on their own and um, uh, who we need to take, we need to either take care of for a longer period of time, like my mom, or give a little boost to like me. Um, and, uh, you know, one, one way in which I think I have 
a slightly different perspective from others is that I think that, that there are a lot of people like my mom who are going to need that kind of help intermittently through their whole lives. And um, we're not going to, you know, we cannot pretend um, that folks with these, with some folks, and this is not most folks with mental illness and behavioral health issues, but there are some who are going to continue to struggle forever. And the goal is not, should not be to sort of have a three-month or six-month intervention and then send that person off on their own. Um, of course, right now in San Francisco, too often what we're having is like six and eight-hour interventions with people in the emergency room, and then we send them off on their own. Um, uh, but even, you know, even three or six months, sometimes we, for some of these folks, we need to think in terms of years, um, and we need to keep them safe, and we need to be able to step up our engagement when psychosis is taking over and keep those people somewhere safe and then step it down when, you know, a more restrictive living situation is not called for. Um, so that is kind of what, you know, I think, uh, my experiences led me to, which is partly my real interest in conservatorship, um, and other mechanisms, honestly, for stepping in in a more parental role, either on a short-term basis or a long-term basis, for people who just can't take care of themselves. And I think it is one of the great shames of our state and our city that we allow so many people to spiral for so long um, and that we have no comprehensive response to their needs. Um, we had a response in the middle, you know, in the 20th century. It was an imperfect response to the state mental hospitals, um, but we didn't create a more perfect response. We just shut that response down and with an aggressiveness that other states and other countries did not do. And I think that is responsible for a lot of what we have, um, you know, what, what we see in terms of very sick people out on the streets. So I think most of us, if any, most, a majority of San Franciscans would, would say, no, we need to take care of that person. Um, but we're not doing it. For those not familiar, um, Mr. Roy Mandolin, could you describe like what is conservatorship, um, mm. and uh, are there examples of other cities that have maybe implemented it um, in in an effective manner? Well, conservatorship is is the main mechanism that we have in California for um, sort of for the state or a family member to step in in the role of a parent for. Um, a person, an adult person who cannot take care of themselves. And um, it's, you know, the Lannerman-Petrus Short Act is the kind of big law around conservatorship and um, involuntary detention for health reasons uh, in California. It goes back to the 60s. It was part of um, deinstitutionalization. Um, in the middle of the 20th century, the state mental health through the state mental hospitals was the second largest budget item in the California state budget. And this is, and was a model that, you know, many states were dealing with mental illness through large institutions um, that had a kind of, kind of comprehensive commitment um, to caring for people who couldn't care for themselves. Now there were problems with that system. Um, one problem was too many people um, were being, put into those institutions for too long for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, people could be put away because they, you know, young women, because they were difficult. 
um, effeminate men because they they were gay. Um, uh, you know, there were various you know people with modest mental illness, um, you know, locked up forever in ways that they you know that objectively they didn't need to be. Um, and some of those institutions provided high quality care and certainly were better than what we have now, but some of them had real abuse. And um, so this act, this Lanterman Pettis Short Act was part of you know, this broader movement to, to sort of try to get folks who didn't need to be in the hospitals out of the hospitals. And the promise was that there would be community-based care, alternative ways of caring for people, that we would get folks into the least restrictive environment if they didn't need to be in a locked facility, don't have them in a locked facility. If they need additional outreach and supervision, we'll provide that. We'll have a, you know, the, the dream, I think, for the reformers, the sort of more liberal reformers of the 60s and 70s, was that we would build a much more humane system that didn't rely on these large institutions, but you know, to the extent we needed them would, ha would have the large institutions. So the Lanham and Petra Short Act says, you can still take away someone's liberty on a shorter long-term basis and care for them. You can still take someone to the hospital on an emergency basis under, uh, uh, under 5150 um, of the public welfare code, penal code, not sure, but anyway, under a section of law that is 5150. We can we can take someone for up to seventy two hours um, and hold them in in an emergency room or a hospital. Um, we can hold them for a longer period of time after that, but with judicial supervision. Um, and if they need to be held for more than thirty days, um, then conservatorship comes into play. And conservatorship um, requires that someone be gravely disabled. It's a determination that has to get made by a judge. Um, there has to, you know, there's a right to a public defender. Um, there needs to be regular review of this. Um, and, but, but if someone is conserved, then another person or the county um, is responsible for making important life decisions for them about where they live. Um, sometimes it, it involves deciding, and this requires additional legal process, but whether or not they uh, can be required to take medication, that kind of thing. Um, so that, that's what, that's conservatorship. There's a whole bunch of weaknesses legally and, and ways in which our conservatorship laws have been frustrating to policymakers, mental health advocates, families of people with mental illness. And it gets really complicated around people for whom a big part of their grave disability is their substance use disorder. Um, because uh, if someone is hospitalized and taken away from their substances, um, that person can pretty quickly, uh, you know, not appear to be gravely disabled. And yet we know that some of those folks, even after a few days or weeks of, of, of getting cleaned up and, and getting some, some help, um, when we send them back out, we'll start using again and we'll be back in the hospital. And the worst sort of version of that is this kind of, for this set of folks out on the streets in San Francisco, that's just incredible revolving door where they're getting, having, um, interactions with police, with with uh, emergency um, medical med techs, paramedics, uh, going into emergency rooms, going to the jail, ending up back on the street, sometimes committing low-level crimes, and this can go on for years and years. And we see it. You see the folks in your neighborhood uh, or in the neighborhoods you pass through who are like this. And for a variety of reasons, our existing laws and resources have not been adequate to to get those folks conserved. And so I'm interested in figuring out, 
well, what do we need to do legally and resource wise to actually have those folks under care and supervision for longer periods of time? That makes sense. Thanks for, for diving deeper into that. Supervisor <laughs> The uh, uh, so taking uh, moving into the next segment, actually decent segue. Th this type of policy that you described isn't something that we necessarily typically hear about um, as necessarily quote unquote progressive. I'm not sure where it falls in line of the kind of like traditional <laughs> political spectrum, um, uh, but uh, uh, would love to hear kind of like in this frame of view that you have. Uh, what how do you describe progressivism? as a philosophy and having seen it now in San Francisco for several decades, how do you feel it was defined or was it informed by like maybe two or three decades ago and how has it changed um, over the last couple of decades and what do you think influenced that? Love to hear your thoughts on how progressivism has evolved um, over the last couple of decades. Oh my goodness. Um, well, I, you know, I don't think I, I, I don't get to define progressivism. And, um, but I think, you know, in some sense, most San Franciscans are progressive. And, um, you know, by that, I mean, um, you know, some combination of you know, rationalist commitment to um, science and data, um, uh, you know, a, a sort of not proceeding based on kind of the ancient hatreds and biases, uh, um, you know, uh, so at a very, in, in some sense, like children of the enlightenment kind of thing. Um, but, you know, San Francisco has, um, a history of a kind of unique kind of progressivism that is very, um, grassroots, bottom up, skeptical of, um, of power, skeptical of, uh, of certainly of business elites, um, of, of skeptical of capitalism. Um, and, um, you know, I think of that sort of, sort of more mo that kind of modern San Francisco progressivism, um, for me is a lot about that generation of folks who, um, stood up to the freeways, who rebelled against the planners, um, who saved their neighborhoods from being, you know, uh, or often, or sometimes didn't, um, but, uh, from being redeveloped away, but the people who, um, you know, said, you know, no, San Francisco is not just a, a place to make money. San Francisco is a place for people to live and flourish, um, do art, um, do things that are not necessarily immediately going to generate the highest profit or the greatest, um, you know, the greatest uh, economic value. And, um, you know, so that's a kind of classic San Francisco progressivism that I think is still alive and well, even though kind of the original, the originators of it are either quite old or at this point, you know, many have died. Um, there's a, you know, sort of the, the activism of the eighties, um, LGBTQ uh, activists, um, uh, AIDS activists, and then the folks who were fighting for sanctuary, fighting against uh, US involvement in Central America, um, the leftward edge of the Democratic Party. Um, and then, you know, another strand of it is, uh, and I think related to this notion that we are a city that's about uh, maximizing human flourishing, even if sometimes that is not uh, consistent with economic, you know, that is a challenge to economic growth, um, comes in some of the sort of um, groundbreaking policies the city has enacted around, you know, 
trying to do a local version of universal healthcare 20 years ago, you know? Um, uh, we tried, I had no idea we tried universal healthcare 20 years ago. We, we did uh, Tom Amiano um, and Gavin Newsom and we're delivering healthcare through our public health system to undocumented folks as a, you know, just a right through healthy San Francisco um, going back uh, at least to the, you know, the, 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 the aughts, the mid, the mid uh, I think it was like 2005-ish, I'm guessing. Um, that became, you know, less uh, necessary, although the program is still around uh, with Obamacare. Um, but we decided we were going to provide healthcare, you know, uh, high-quality, um, basic healthcare of last resort as just sort of a thing that happens for San Francisco residents regardless of status. That was, I think, one of Tom Amiano, um, you know, one of his great, great accomplishments. Um, so, you know, there's a lot, uh, and I'm, I'm sh there are many other examples. I mean, leading the way on environmental legislation, um, you know, limiting develop, limiting office development back in the eighties, uh, to preserve, to protect neighborhoods. Um, you know, there were a lot of ways in which San Francisco activists basically said, F you to the economy <laughs> and the economy didn't <laughs> die. Um, and, uh, and the city continued to grow. Um, yeah, I do think that that has changed in the last, you know, 10, 10 years. I think, you know, for people 15 years ago, you could say, uh, San Francisco is a city for people who hate cities. Um, and I think increasingly San Francisco is, is really, you know, quite urbanist, um, you know, has, has tall buildings at a scale that would have horrified, um, a lot of the neighborhood activists in the, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, um, but, you know, Supervisor, Supervisor Mandelman, yeah. this is Joel. I wanted to, I wanted to yeah. ask, like, a position where you fit in the spectrum of Democratic blue. What is your progressivism? Because you had <laughs> talked about uh, conservatorship, right? This is something that Mayor Breed, Senator Wiener, the really champion, yeah. and they're demonized for it. And yeah. another issue, you're actually... Uh, uh, wanting to push legislation to make uh, allow for building more housing, which yeah. Mayor Breed, Senator Weiner are champions yeah. of and demonized for it. And you're, yeah. so your many of your colleagues are working against those issues. So how do you relate to that? Well, you know, um, I think that uh, you can have policy differences on the left. And I think, to be honest, um, most you know, the, 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 the loud, aggressive battles to the death fights that we have in San Francisco politics where we demonize our opponents are all happening in a re relatively small ideological space. And, um, you know, I think, so my particular view on this is I am still committed to very progressive values. I do, you know, it is not my goal um, for San Francisco to be the place where people can make the most money. Um, it's my goal for San Francisco to be the place where the most people can be the most happy. Um, and I continue to be a wealth redistributionist and believe in high taxation and high levels of service and, um, you know, uh, you know, think that we need to protect renters and, um, I'm skeptical of the, you know, I'm skeptical of the claims of, of, of special interests that have money and power. However, um, as I look at San Francisco right now and I see some of the challenges that we have, I don't believe that our failures as a city are most directly relatable to our failure to be sufficiently progressive. I don't think, as some of 
the folks who are, I think, to my left, uh, to the radical of me, would say that we um, we need to fight the man harder. I mean, in some cases we do, and there are certainly areas where we need to legislate against um, you know abuse by those with wealth and power. And in fact, today I'm introducing legislation um, to you know protect renters around the loss of housing services. But if I, the, I think that the challenge for San Francisco progressives is is to show that a very blue city with very progressive values can also be effectively run. And that is about recognizing that money is not infinite. Um, we can try to get more money by getting more revenue, but we need to spend in a way that is responsible. We need to take care of um, providing basic public services more efficiently. Um, and, uh, and so when you look at something like conservatorship, it is framed by those, the sort of civil libertarian absolutists, as a, as a left-right issue. You know, I don't think so. I don't think it is very progressive to leave, um, to leave sick people to care for themselves. And I don't think it is very progressive to deny um, anyone the ability to live in a uh, peaceful uh, neighborhood uh, or to use our public spaces until we have achieved some utopia where everyone has a home. Um, I think that we can try to provide more homes for very poor people. We can try to manage homelessness more effectively. And we can also say that every San Franciscan should be able to use our public spaces, that our sidewalks should be passable, that our plazas um, should, not be, um, should not be filthy. Um, you know, I, I think that we can, um, we can recognize and pursue alternatives to incarceration, alternatives to policing, and also recognize that for the moment we need our police, we need to reform our police, we need to have our police be more reflective and representative of the communities that they are policing. But when burglaries are up, um, when uh, when uh, there is a feeling of unsafety on the streets, there is a role for the police, and and um, and we you know and we need to recognize that and fund it appropriately. Um, so I think that you know uh, there can you know as I said, we have to fight about something, and there are real differences of opinion, and it is to. Uh, I suppose to the benefit of some who have more extreme positions on some of these issues to categorize those of us who don't share those most more extreme positions as Republicans. Um, but I don't think that's right. I don't actually think, and you know, and so I think it's the job of liberals to push back. And, and for, um, those, for those listening who might not have been here at the time, in 2010, you ran against Scott Wiener for supervisor. Yeah. But just now you sound more like Scott Wiener than ever before. Than Scott Wiener. I mean, on some of this, I think I sound actually maybe a little more conservative than Scott Wiener. Um, uh, you know, part of that is my own maturation. Part of it is serving in government. Um, I've been on the, Demo I, I'm a, I've been a Democratic Party activist for a long time. But there is a difference when you get into office and the decisions that you make are actually going to impact, impact people's lives. Um, when you are actually responsible for the budget, um, when you actually see the ways in which the interaction of interest groups um, hijacks policy and actually doesn't further the will of the center in San Francisco. I'm comfortable with the center in San Francisco. The center in San Francisco is actually quite left. Um, broadly supportive, as I said, of you know taxation, of wealth redistribution, of protection of the vulnerable. But the center also wants the city to step up and do better. And um, I don't, as I said, I don't think stepping up and do better, doing better, just means moving in a more ideological left direction. So, um, 
anyway, yeah, Scott and I ran, you know, Scott and I ran against each other. We don't agree on everything, um, you know, uh, but, um, you know, people don't have to agree on everything. Hi, this is Sachin. Thanks for listening to the Grow SF Town Hall. We started Grow SF because we love San Francisco, and we think we can make it even better if residents learn more about how our city is run and get involved. You can learn more about Grow SF at growsf.org. Thanks, Rose Mendelin. So moving on to the last segment, we'll love to start taking audience questions. So if you are in the audience and would like to ask a question directly of Supervisor Mandelman, feel free to click the button in the, in the bottom left um, to request to speak and uh, our moderator will bring you up. Um, uh, as we wait for folks to uh, come up to ask questions, um, I'll ask one last question, Supervisor Mandelman, um, kind of thinking about the future. Um, uh, I won't get into two current events, but it's inspired by some current events that are happening. Yeah. Um, one one facet is that, um, and you kind of alluded to it, um, uh, is that like it seems San Francisco discourse and politics has always been kind of aggressive, and um, uh, and things can get pretty heated. Um, and civility and discourse seems to um, be less less apparent or less there. Do you think there's a is there a path forward to having more civil discourse in the city and um, amongst politicians or how we treat staff and how do you think that that could change? I hope that there is, um, and I have complicated thoughts about it. Uh, I try to, and you know, we're all responsible for ourselves and our own actions, and I try to model the kind of behavior that I think is appropriate from elected officials. Um, you know, I try to be respectful of uh, the people who work for the city and county of San Francisco. Um, you know, I, there is an inherent tension between the board of supervisors and the mayor in, in San Francisco that does not exist in most, in most counties. In most counties, the board of supervisors controls the executive. In San Francisco, the Board of Supervisors uh, is independent of the executive and the executive is independent of the Board of Supervisors and the two can be going in different directions on different policies. And so um, I think one of the reasons, you know, San Francisco politics in part gets more heated because there's more, there's actually a structural basis for that kind of contention. Um, there's so also a balance like of balance of power similar to that the president and Congress. Exactly, Congress. which is, you know, actually not, you know, not the case in plenty of places. And I think you could, you know, this is a job for a political scientist to figure out the strengths and weaknesses of our system, right? Um, I can imagine there are strengths. We, the mayor and the board of supervisors uh, try to outdo each other in, um, in pursuing, uh, you know, forward thinking policies. Um, the mayor and the board of supervisors hold each other accountable um uh and are in competition and and those things seem like potentially good things but um there's also plenty of room for frustration and uh you know some of my colleagues i think and, and i have experienced you know you feel like you're being shined on by this bureaucrat over whom you have no control um and so what do you do when that person's in a hearing in front of you and you're they're just not getting it, or they're refusing to engage with an issue that you think is important, or you you're or you're having trouble getting that department to respond to you on something else. And sometimes I think people don't understand that the the conflict that you see happening on 
the you know on the screen or in the meeting um maybe about that issue or maybe about other things that you know um that are going on that we just don't know about um so that you know makes that complicated nonetheless I think both both within city government and outside and, you know, among in the activist community, um, you know, one of my one of the things that I say somewhat annoyingly to people is like, you know, stop yelling. Um, uh, (laughs) I I think there's I think there is metaphorically and literally a little, you know, we're pretty heavy into the yelling zone in San Francisco and social media. I mean, we're here on Twitter, but social media does make it worse. Like social media rewards the most cutting um, analysis, you know, the most cutting, short, pithy analysis of what somebody is doing that doesn't acknowledge nuance or complexity, right? That's not what, that's not what you get, what gets you likes on social media. What gets you likes is really boiling it down and zinging them. And I think that, you know, the combination of that on top of San Francisco's just historic kind of high level of passion and tension um, is it is making our politics a pretty rough, rough space. And then um, and then that brings us to just the current political moment. We have a board of supervisors that is uh, overwhelmingly composed of people who at some level don't share the mayor's agenda. Um, when I was elected. Um, I was the progressive who tilted the board from the uh, from the mo- pro moderate mayoral majority that Ed Lee had you know had enjoyed um, for most of his time in office, maybe all of his time in office, to what was going to be a more progressive independent majority. And I was pretty you know probably center of gravity on the board and maybe a little to the left um, in that. Um, you know, since that time, there's been change and transition on the board of supervisors, and um, at this point, I'm you know probably one of the friendly. When when room 200 looks uh, looks out at the board of supervisors, I'm one of the friendlier spaces they got. Um, and you know, Willie Brown was saying to me like, "But that's I mean that's a really rough spot because you're doing it on the merits, not because just because because you're doing it. like like they don't have." the kind of reliable in the bag allies that many mayors have just sort of relied on and thought would be, you know, just there four votes at least. I mean, just because the mayor is asking for it, that doesn't exist. I don't, you know, I'm not sure there's anybody on this board of supervisors who does things just because the mayor asks for it. Even I, you know, have, have challenged them on appointments that they've made on policies that they've pursued Um, so they're really in a uniquely challenged space. Um, and then it gets, you know, from their perspective worse as you move leftward from me. Um, so I do think, um, you know, there's, there's sort of a a rough and tumble that has this mayor in a politically very challenging spot. Um, and I, and I would, you know, I, I do, and this is, as I said, the way I operate, I think that we can hold them accountable um, that we can draw, we can we can uh, dig in on the policy differences that may exist between us individually or collectively with the administration, without uh, belittling, berating, and harassing public servants. Um, I'm just not entirely sure, as a, as like a, a practical matter, like how to do that um, uh, because That's we're all yeah. we're all independently elected, and presumably we're all doing what our voters. The voters who sent us there um, want us to do, um, or, or at least what we think they do. And the, the the tricky part is that actually I don't know that San Francisco. I don't think San Franciscans are terribly happy with their government, even though they've elected it. Um, so we do have a little bit of 
a, a democratic crisis in San Francisco. I mean, it's not huge crisis, but modest crisis, um, where we have this government that seems not reflective of the majority, um, and yet uh, is democratically selected. So, you know, interesting. Not sure, yeah, not sure how we fix that either. That's fair. Um, moving on to the audience questions now, uh, Barack, uh, what's your question? Hey, uh, hey, Supervisor, and thanks for always responding to my emails. It was fascinating to hear oh. you describe uh, the tension between SF progressivism and economic growth. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's turn to housing. You mentioned mm -hmm. your goal was to have the most people be the happiest, right? Yeah. And if we legalized right. apartments in the 70% of the city where they're illegal, like we could mm -hmm. grow the population 50% while making it more affordable to folks like LGBTQ youth and people of color. I yeah. am aware you proposed upzoning corner lots to fourplexes, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is great, but seems insufficiently ambitious. So here's my question. Don't you think true progressivism would be growing the city faster? Um, I think um, that we have a housing supply problem in uh, and, and of all levels in, in San Francisco and all of California. And I think that the fact that we are 49th out of 50 in housing units per pe per person is directly related to our um, to our to our affordability crisis, and I think to deny that is um, you know the twenty twenty first century San Francisco equivalent of being a flat earther. Like there is a relationship between market supply and um, and the price and the price of housing, and so um, I think the whole state, not just San Francisco, needs to be finding ways to build more housing. Um, and but um, I also think that, you know, we are a democracy and we are a built out city. Um, so it is it is a hard thing to do in a way that uh, respects existing communities, um, that doesn't displace existing tenants, um, that preserves some of the qualities and of neighborhood character that make make our neighborhoods desirable places to live in the first place. I think we can do it, um, but I don't think it's going to be, um, you know, a one size fits all. Now on, you know, fourplex, I agree. I think we should do fourplex citywide. Um, I don't understand density restrictions. Um, and I think that we need to go beyond density restrictions to find places where we need to go beyond eliminating density restrictions to go to find ways to, in, you know, allow increased heights, um, allow, you know, more development in other ways. Um, we need to do that because it's the right policy and we need to do it because we're going to be required to do we are required to do it uh, by the state of california and we're going through a rena process a regional housing needs allocation process and a housing element process that are going to sort of lay out a path to allowing for the production of significantly more housing in san francisco than we have produced before um but I think we have to do it with some sensitivity. And so, um, you know, as an example, um, I support the ADU program. I think allowing people to put in more, add more units, add more units to small buildings, add more units to big buildings. Um, I think it's a no brainer until you find out that you have uh, existing some tenants um, who are having their uh, storage or parking or, um, or and, you know, we can talk about parking, but, but you know, their laundry rooms um, converted to make uh, space for, um, for, for new, for, for additional units. And then it, you have a direct conflict um, and have to think about, well, is there a way to do this 
supervisor, um, at some point, shouldn't we actually prioritize a new home over a parking spot? Like, don't we have to make sacrifices for housing sometimes? Sure, and we do. And we've changed and I've supported um, eliminating minimum parking requirements citywide. Um, you know, the ADUs certainly, uh, you know, if, if there's no, if, if the tenant has moved out, um, who's using that parking space, by all means, go ahead and convert it. Um, and gradually, we, need, we know we need to become less automobile dependent. We need to be uh, improving our public transportation system. But I don't believe that we're going to make progress on adding housing if it is an all or nothing proposition. And we ignore the concerns of neighbors or renters or whoever. And that's really, I mean, my fourplex proposal is modest. I think it can be expanded. I think we can go citywide and I think we can do a bunch of other things too. But I think we can do it, I hope we can do it in a way that kind of brings people along, that takes some of the, um, the edge off the conversation. There's, there's a le little bit less about slapping your opponent into realizing the error of their ways and a little bit more about figuring out like, oh, maybe there's a thing, maybe you know, we can get a majority of us all agreed that four units on, you know, is, is not the end of the world. I think we can do that. And I think that'll make a, a very modest, but a modest uh, contribution to addressing our supply problem. And then I think we have to do like a hundred more things like that. Um, thanks, Supervisor Benjamin. Um, and thanks, Barack, for the question. Yeah, I think basically to, treating things sequentially and, and iterating um, sounds like the approach. Uh, Stacy, uh, thanks for coming on stage. Um, uh, what's your question for the supervisor? Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. And Supervisor Mandelman, thanks for walking into this forum. I appreciate your time. Um, sure. And I have just um, a few quick questions. One yeah. is, have you been to Paris? You know, I just booked <laughs> myself. I have not. And I just booked myself a trip for the end of all. It's my, my first post-pandemic international trip. Oh, my gosh. When are you going? I'm going the end of August, beginning of September. That is fantastic. I am thrilled to hear it. And <laughs> I you're hope... gonna you're gonna tell me where to go to see all the best things. <laughs> well, I, I you, as long as you're in Paris, you're you're gonna be just fine. What I would encourage you to do is to look around and see that nearly yeah. every building, every housing unit is six stories tall. And that yeah. everything and gorgeous and yeah and be beautiful and it's all just fine, and that also my personal idol uh, Mayor Anne Hidalgo has mm -hmm. um, said that people are the priority, not cars, and built mm -hmm. bike lanes everywhere. Everywhere. And yes, this right. is on a top of a, um, a world class metro system, but mm -hmm. this is even absent of that. People are taking up bikes like no other place on earth. And yeah. with the advent of e-bikes, there's really no reason um, that we shouldn't be doing more of that. Uh, we're the second most densely populated large city in the country. And, um, but the rate of cars we have, I don't know, I think it's something like 10 times what they have uh, per capita in Paris. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I'm sitting in one right now awaiting my son to come out so that I can drive him to mm -hmm. his summer program because transit will be an hour and 12 minutes from our house. And I don't mm -hmm. make him do that every day. So right. how often do you ride tra transit? Oh, not, 
not as much as I should. Um, you know, I'm going to say a couple times a month at this point. Um, okay. Yeah. And yeah. is there anything to um, improve the transit experience in San Francisco? Is is there anything what? Okay, um, is there anything you're looking um, to help improve the transit experience in San Francisco? Because I know you care about the environment. Like, if I have to pick environmental concern supervisor, it's yeah. you. Um, oh well, so. yes. I think that we uh, we know we have and uh, I have relied entirely on transit at some points in my life and was car free, um, you know, until uh, uh, basically until four or five years ago, as I was getting further into kind of my political life and needing to go to like eight thousand um, things each day. Um, I think that uh, we know what ails Muni. I helped convene the Muni Transit Performance Working Group a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, to analyze, you know, why are we not delivering better service? And at the time, it was, you know, we brought together experts from around the country and uh, from San Francisco to kind of look at the Muni, the improvements that had happened in Muni over the prior decade and the areas where we were getting stuck. And, um, you know, some of the, there were, there are, there are a ton of uh, HR hiring training issues um, in the weeds uh, at MTA. And frankly, uh, this is a big part of San Francisco city government not working, more broadly not working, Um, but they also need more money. Um, And so um, for me, you know, as County Transportation Authority Chair, one of my big projects over the over the next year is going to be to try to figure out how to one get our uh, transportation authority sales tax renewed, but also try to help Jeff Tumlin and the MTA um, come up with a, a package of revenue that can pass with the voters and allow for improved service. We need more buses, more trains. We need them running more frequently. Um, I think that Tumlin and uh, staff at the MTA have been very creative during the pandemic about thinking about ways to improve service, even in, you know, a horrible, horrible time, Um, more uh, transit only lanes, um, more uh, improvements in uh, in boarding. I mean, there's, you know, at the extreme example, and this is also an extreme example of like San Francisco failure, but the BRT project on Van Ness, if we were able to do that um, in a, in a, that kind of project in a more cost-effective and timely way and have really great um, tra- public transportation, folks' reliance on cars would would decline precipitously. It would solve a lot of our housing challenges because um, we would be able to add or would help solve housing challenges as we're able to add people without clogging up our streets with congestion. Um, so I think that's a huge priority. And it never, and these, and transportation revenue um, has suffers. People do not prioritize it over the last, you know, there have been multiple task forces over the last 10 years identifying um, sort of long-term plans for MTA and identifying billions of dollars of capital needs and operational needs. And the, the revenue measures to support that investment either don't materialize or in one case get voted down at the ballot box. Uh, meanwhile, you know, we pass all sorts of taxes for all sorts of other purposes, which are valid and valuable, 
But from my perspective, the taxes I care most about right now and want to see uh, in, increased and want to see more revenue for are to support and improve our public transportation system. And I think it is, you know, we did building electrification for new buildings last year. That was legislation that I that I authored. We need to do a lot more on buildings, but the other giant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions is, uh, besides buildings, is, of course, uh, you know, automobiles. And so trying to switch away from automobiles to transit and other alternatives is, um, you know, an immediate priority. So I'm with you on that. I, uh, I'm, I'm, okay. told that the that supervisor, is, that I'm told the supervisor has a 9 a.m. press conference to head to, and I see we're almost <laughs> at 9 o'clock. Bilal, do you have any final uh, comments or questions? Uh, no, I mean, final question would actually, thank you, Stacey, for joining. Appreciate your, your, your question. And, sure, and, sure. Thank you. Um, please, please ride transit and ride a bike. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Supervisor, Amanda, do you have any, uh, how can other people on the audience get involved uh, with San Francisco politics? Um, how can we help? I mean, there's a ton of ways, you know, um, getting involved in your neighborhood organization, your um, your uh, a democratic club that either speaks to some aspect of your identity or your neighborhood. Um, you know, going to commission meetings or uh, board of supervisors meetings on issues that you care about. But I think what I really would encourage people to do is try to engage with people who do not share your views. Try to go out and seek out the people who, to you, um, your impulse, if you were to run and encounter them posting on Twitter, would be to get into a war and try to have a real conversation with them <laughs> and understand, like, what truth might they hold somewhere in there in their misguided, muddled brains? Because I think we will get better as a city if we, um, all of us who are so certain that we are right, um, make some space to listen to people who, um, who we think uh, are not right. Um, and maybe we can come up with some beautiful syntheses out of that. Or maybe you'll just get more convinced that you were right all along and come up with better arguments for why they're wrong. <laughs> Um, that's great. So maybe that, that's the solution to the earlier question about how do we get more civil discourse is talk to so. more people that we disagree with. Thanks, Scott. So. Uh, Supervisor Mandelman, um, I really appreciate your time and uh, good luck with the press conference. Thank you. Take care. Bye, everybody. Have a good day. Hi. Thanks for listening to the Grow SF Town Hall. Now more than ever, we need to support our small businesses. They have struggled to stay alive through the pandemic and need our help to get back to 100%. So please shop local eat local, and if you can, tip big. One great thing that happened during the pandemic was outdoor dining. It allowed many restaurants to operate in a limited capacity. We don't want outdoor dining to go away. GrowSF is making a big push to make outdoor dining permanent. Please visit growsf.org to sign our petition and to learn more.